0: Today on Something You Should Know, if you use reusable grocery bags, there's something you need to hear. Then, the fascinating world of driving, the open road. Do you like to drive?
1: It's the most dangerous thing most of us do, driving. On the other hand, if you think about all those people out there, all the many millions of miles that are generated every year, I'm surprised there isn't more uh, chaos and damage than there
0: is. Also, the secret way to get ketchup out of the bottle every time. And if you want people to like you, you need to understand the laws of likability.
2: One of my favorites is uh, the law of energy. And this is the idea, and the law states that energy is contagious. What we give off is what we get back. We all have a mood, we're all kind of sending off a vibe. And what we don't think about is that it impacts everything.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know.
1: Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts,
0: and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. It does seem that more and more governments, local governments, maybe even state governments, are requiring people to either bring their own grocery bags, reusable grocery bags, to the store, or pay a fee to get a new bag from the store. But could your grocery bags be making you fat? Scientists at Harvard discovered that people who brought their own reusable grocery bags were more likely to buy junk food compared to those who paid for and got a plastic bag at checkout. The theory is that using a reusable grocery bag makes people feel more virtuous since you know that you're helping the environment by choosing a bag that is not going to end up in a landfill. Consequently, you feel more entitled to reward yourself for your virtuous behavior by splurging on some junk food. The advice is to just be aware of the tendency to do this, so maybe you'll be able to stop yourself from splurging, And do keep using that reusable bag. It will eventually feel so routine that you won't feel the need to reward yourself. And that is something you should know. Ever since I got my driver's license many years ago, I have always loved to drive. And because I live in Southern California, which is legendary for having too many cars and too few roads and a lot of traffic jams, I'm fascinated by how people drive and what causes traffic jams. I like to think I'm a good driver, but I suspect most people think they're a good driver. There are also a lot of jerky drivers that go too fast and tailgate and zip in and out of lanes. Do those people think they're good drivers? Tom Vanderbilt has looked at a lot of the research about how people drive and how we could maybe drive a little better. He's the author of a book called Traffic why we drive the way we do, and what it says about us. And he joins me now. So why do we drive the way we do, Tom? Are, are we good drivers?
1: That's a really good question. You, know, you, you look at the, the safety numbers on this, and you know, we still have upwards of 30,000 people in the United States uh, who, who die every year in, in traffic fatalities. And this, this is a huge number, of course, in the 1950s, when far fewer people were driving, that figure was closer to 50,000 people. So uh, there has been progress. I, I would say, unfortunately, most of that progress has come about because of, of the vehicles getting safer, not humans becoming better drivers. So I mean, but I've always been struck there's two ways to look at this, that it's, as one paper once put it, it's the greatest contributor to mortality uh, upon leaving your house, basically. I mean, it's the most dangerous thing most of us do, driving, on the other hand, if you think about all those people out there, all the mi- many millions of miles that are generated every year, I'm surprised there isn't more uh, chaos and 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 damage than there is.
0: When when I'm stuck in a traffic jam, and often when you get to the whatever the source of this traffic jam and, it, and there was no cause, and so I'm I'm thinking that there's just some people, there's some Person that just doesn't know how to drive, and they're screwing up everything.
1: Engineers have kind of called these phantom traffic jams, and they're usually, usually not a phantom condition. It's just what's happened is that by the time we've arrived there, whatever precipitated this event has disappeared. Another way to think about this is that there's a wonderful animation on YouTube. I can't think of the exact link, but it sort of you know models what happens during a traffic jam, and there's sort of a backwards propagating wave so if you think about it, you're not driving into a traffic jam. The traffic jam is actually sort of rippling back into you. So you're kind of driving often when you see one of these things that you get there and you know, what happened. It's because it already happened. It's gone. It's history. You're sort of driving into a historical um, traffic jam that has ended. And that event might have been anything from you know, a slight rise on the highway uh, in elevation, which is particularly problematic for trucks, it could have been, you know, the sun setting at a particular angle, which causes people to, you know, not be able to see the road. Someone might have cut someone off while changing lanes. There could have been a piece of debris on the roadside or, or a cop
0: that, you know, people saw. You, you make the interesting point in your book that ants don't get into traffic jams, and there's a lot of them on that ant highway. Why is that?
1: You know, there's this just, this great flow that happens, That um, and, and even when there's something like a bottleneck. Ants just seem really good at at self-organizing to eliminate, uh, you know, problems at, at those points. And and the the, the argument is is that you know an ant colony is a is a c- completely cooperative system. Every no ant is really out for itself, trying to get to the food source faster than another ant. They're all working, uh, you know, for the queen, basically. But so they they sort of you know self-generate these these algorithms in a sense that. You dictate how, how their flow works, how how close they get to one another, the speed they're going. They can even you know sort of form bridges with their own bodies if there's a, a gap in the trail network. Um, just kind of utterly optimized to get the most traffic flow uh, bang for the buck. And I should say that this is what engineers would call sort of socially optimal way. They're trying to make overall traffic flow the best as possible, as opposed to an individual. Uh, optimality, um, which, you know, and we, we can see that sometimes played out in the actual road traffic environment. If you take something like the idea of ramp metering, which, as you know, in California is a big thing, that's the traffic light at the end of an on-ramp onto the highway, you know, you sometimes get to the end of that and there's a red light and you look over at the highway and you're thinking, well, traffic's flowing, why am I having to stop? And as one engineer explained it to me, you know, the traffic is flowing because we're asking you to stop. I mean, they've sort of recognized that, you know, if if you can just regulate that certain traffic holding up a few individuals, you know, the whole thing will work better. So, you know, in some ways there are some winners and losers there, but the the whole point is that when everyone is really out for themselves to to optimize for their own best behavior, that might not translate to the best kind of traffic flow. If, If everyone just tried to drive as fast as possible, always as close to the person in front of them, counterintuitively in a way, that actually isn't the best for traffic, unlike with ants.
0: But I wouldn't know, even if I wanted to be very altruistic and help the world get where they're going on time, what are the behaviors that would help the flow?
1: Generally adhering to the speed limits, um, changing lanes as as little as possible. Um, You can see this in Police have even done experiments in some towns in Colorado on certain mountain passes where they were getting these traffic jams happening because of people essentially driving into each other and causing these sort of shockwaves. You'd have these police pace cars that would be driving, trying to pace traffic at about 55 miles an hour, which is sort of an optimal rate. It's been determined by engineers that that's around 55 is sort of the magic speed that gets the most cars down the highway at once. And this is what I began my whole book by discussing this question of of late merging when you have sort of two lanes that are are turning into one because of a construction merger, and people often think it's better to get into the lane that's going to remain open immediately and don't get into that lane that's going to close. If you stay in that lane, you're being rude. You know, it turned out when when engineers actually looked into it, they could create a system that if people stayed in both lanes till the merge point and then did a one-on-one merge it would actually be better for everyone. More traffic would get through that. But, you know, there's no way that we would know that. We, we, we sort of think of everyday life and view those other people as sort of cutting. They're cutting in line. We get angry. We might try to disrupt what they're doing, which only makes things you know worse in general. So, um, again, it gets to that sort of socially optimal versus user optimal thing. We, we don't often know what would be best for the whole system, system nor do we want to worry about that. We're just trying to basically get home as fast as we can. So that's one of the great challenges here of trying to coordinate all these people at once uh, on the road.
0: I'm speaking with Tom Vanderbilt. We are talking about traffic and driving and all things related. And Tom is the author of a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us. You know, as a parent, nothing's worse than seeing your kids go back to school not feeling their best. And having acne as a teen is a struggle that can be a major cause of anxiety. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Proactive. It's America's number one acne brand. They've been fighting acne for almost 25 years. Now, they have their next-generation acne treatment system called Proactive md that will have your kids going back to school feeling their best. Proactive MD contains adapalene, which is the newest acne-fighting innovation made available to over-the-counter consumers in over 30 years. This is a safe and effective three-step system that will get your teen ready for the new school year. Right now, for something you should know, listeners, there's a back-to-school offer from Proactive you can't get anywhere else. With your Proactive MD order, you'll also receive a free Proactive's On-The-Go Bag, which features their T-Zone oil absorber, body acne wipes, and green tea moisturizer, close to a $100 value, plus free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So don't wait and go to proactive.com something to get this special offer. Again, go to proactive.com something to order and make your kid's first day back at school their best day ever. You know, distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways, leading to the deaths of thousands of people and injuries in the hundreds of thousands each year. When you take your eyes and your focus off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly. Not just for you, but for other drivers, as well as pedestrians and bicyclists. Sadly, many Americans use their cell phones while driving, whether it's texting, checking emails scrolling media feeds or any other form of distraction. Drivers are putting themselves and others around them at great risk. It's important to know that 48 states ban texting and driving. Also, 21 states prohibit all drivers from using cell phones while driving. Distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're also breaking the law. Look, It's dangerous to use your cell phone behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce hands-free and anti-texting and driving laws. When you're driving, put down your phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and your mind on the task of driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? So, Tom, are there places in the world where they do things differently? You know, England has their roundabouts instead of four-way stops or, you know, what that actually work better or maybe work worse, but that maybe we could learn from?
1: Absolutely. I mean, roundabouts is a perfect example that we have seen a real growth in what's kind of called the modern or compact roundabout. This is not the giant traffic circle that, you know, Chevy Chase was in in... uh, vacation and set in Paris, you know, where you're sort of lost in this giant circle with 10 lanes. Um, these are these very, you know, small things that forces everyone to slow down as you enter an intersection. You eliminate this T-bone crash, which is a very dangerous crash. Um, the problem with roundabouts that you often get a lot of resistance because drivers think they're more dangerous, which, in fact, they're not. The, what happens is they actually feel a little bit more dangerous because you have to make a more active set of... Uh, Decisions—you have to be more engaged as you go through that intersection. So, I mean, that—but that, roundabouts were really came from from England and some countries in Scandinavia, and have since been applied here in a larger way. I think. Um, I mean, one one general problem I see with the U.S. is just that we we're, we're blessed with a lot of scale and size, so we've often, I think, overbuilt our road network, and we have these very large. Safety engineering stated that, you know, if you gave someone an 11-foot wide lane, they had less chance to sort of drift into the next lane and hit someone. But those wider lanes also encourage people to simply drive faster, and then they kind of consume all the safety benefit that was engineered into that lane. So uh, often I think we, we have these, you know, just sort of, Very dangerous environments that um, on these sort of suburban strips, you know, where you're driving 50 miles an hour, then all of a sudden you have to turn right into the Walmart. I mean, that's a very dangerous uh, situation. And so, kind of designing more livable streets, as they're called, where it's sort of better for all users, it's not going to work in every environment, but um, there's a whole host of things across the world. Um,
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about is how parking fits into this discussion. You know, when people slow down to look for a parking place, or they stop traffic when they're trying to parallel park. Does all of that add to the congestion problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, from from the congestion um, point of view, parking is huge, because, you know, there's the question of, in, in a city like New York, you know, what is parking going to be paid for? Is it going to be free? And Donald Shoup, who is at UCLA, you know, has done some, some famous studies about quizzing people in certain neighborhoods, and trying to estimate how much of the traffic flow was simply people looking for parking. And it, it's huge. The numbers are huge. And they're, what they're looking for generally is free parking. So the thought is, is if you just, you know, no longer make parking free and, and you know, charge the rate that it probably should be charged for in a crowded city where real estate is expensive, that you could, you know, kind of eliminate a lot of this. And we've seen in Tokyo, if you, you can't own a car unless you can provide proof that you actually have a parking spot for it. Um, so you know, different places around the world have different ways of this, but parking is, is as essential as anything to driving. I mean, it's, it, you know, all of our stops, all of our trips end and begin in a place, and that there needs to be a place for that car. So it's, it's huge.
0: Well, our frame of mind when we drive is so interesting to me because, you know, people get so angry when somebody cuts them off and thinks that the... Other guy's such a jerk, and, and yet when we cut somebody off, you know, we're not a jerk, we just made a mistake. But um, a, a, b, b, the things people do in road rage incidents, which, when you if you would take a breath and step back, is not that big a deal, and then uh, guys end up going to jail over it.
1: And being in New York, this is sort of the, the eye of the storm here. I mean, t- trying to get into something like the Holland Tunnel, the entrance to New York, where... Uh, Uh, something like 12 lanes have to get down to two and the amount of merging that has to happen there. You know, I've never had it get personally violent, but there's just a, you know, the sense of panic almost takes over where you really feel like you're all being squeezed, yet you have to sort of get that few foot advantage over the person next to you to to get in ahead to the tunnel ahead of them, which would save you precisely about, you know, one second, if that. So uh, it's just, you know, this, this uh, almost primal, I want to say, uh, impulse that that takes over. And again, just being in a car, this is a point I make a lot in the book, it just takes us a little bit out, out of the human equation where we're surrounded by this shell of anonymity and this we're in a private space in public, so we sort of forget about human interaction and we, we do things that we might not do uh, off the road or not, not behind the wheel. And, you know, you, I mean, people certainly might get in an argument over, waiting in line at a place, but I don't think it happens with the same frequency as uh, it happens on the road.
0: Lastly, you mentioned that, you know, you're probably a more aware driver now uh, from having studied all this. Knowing what you now know, uh, what's the thing you do differently or that you would recommend the typical driver do differently to make things either easier, faster, safer, whatever, that maybe you didn't do before?
1: Um, I mean, one thing that I often try to just remind people of is, I mean, there's a lot of discussion of of skill in driving, and like, oh, if we could only train drivers better, um, you know, a lot of problems would be solved, and that's true to a point. But then people often don't really get what the skill in driving is, and it's not really these things we, you know, these high performance things we think about about avoiding crashes or acting in, you know, high-risk situations, because, I mean, studies have shown that, you know, when, when people are at, often people just make no reaction. I mean, you, you really don't have much time to think, and those are such fleeting events, but what driving really is, it's it's more, you know, sort of these larger abstract things about, you know, plan, advanced planning, you know, knowing, you know, just studying the road conditions, knowing what's going to happen, anticipating what someone else is going to do, try to keep other people's, you know, what other people want to do in mind, not just sort of focus on what you want to do. That, that's often the sense of this road rage is we, we think the other person did something because they're a jerk, but they might have not seen you. They might have had to get over to get off at an exit. You know, we, we, there's kind of this rush to, to judgment. But um, if we could just sort of think of traffic as a cooperative social system that we, we all need to get where we're going safely at the end of the day, not this, you know, sort of zero-sum game of... Uh, of you know Darwinian struggle that you know the best drivers win because um, often often they don't um, you know I think that would just, just sort of help things in general so it's sort of just a humanistic plea here I think at the end of the day
0: or maybe just be more like the ants my guest has been Tom Vanderbilt he's author of the book Traffic Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us you can get a link to his book on Amazon in the show notes for this episode of the podcast thanks for joining me Tom. Thank you, Mike. I'm sure you've heard of those DNA test kits you can get that tell you about your ancestry and your health traits. Well, what you may not know is they have one for dogs, the Embark Dog DNA Test Kit. It's the most comprehensive kit on the market, looking at over 250 breeds and 170 genetic health conditions so you can take better care of your dog. I'm anxiously awaiting results for my dog, Taffy. In fact, we have a friend who had her dog tested. She was so sure she knew what breeds her dog was. When the results came back, it turns out she wasn't even close. Embark is the only research-grade dog DNA test kit on the market. Over 50% of dogs are either at risk or a carrier of a genetic disease. And since our pets can't talk to us about ailments or symptoms you will have a leg up when it comes to knowing about their health. Right now, for Something You Should Know listeners, Embark has an exclusive summer offer you can't get anywhere else. Go to EmbarkVet.com and use the promo code SOMETHING to save 15% off your dog DNA test kit. Discover your dog more than fur deep. Visit EmbarkVet.com and use the promo code SOMETHING to save. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. Everybody loves game shows. Everybody has a podcast. I've got both. Hey, everybody. I'm Kyle Brandt, and my new show, 10 Questions, is a game show talk show. Athletes, movie stars, everybody will come on, not just to talk, they come on this show to compete. 10 Questions that, whether they know it or not, are somehow inspired by a moment in their life or their career. 10 Questions. 10 points, so much fun. Head over to Spotify and please follow 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt. You have people in your life who are just plain likable. They're fun to be around, they're easy to talk to, they make you feel good. And, and then there are people in your life who are, shall we say, less likable. But what makes somebody likable? How can you be more likable if that's something you'd like to be? Michelle Tillis-Letterman has researched this topic. Michelle is a speaker, coach, and author of the book, The 11 Laws of Likeability. Hi, Michelle. So so what is likability? How do you define it?
2: That's an interesting question. Likeability is the points of connection that we find in other people um, that make us say, Uh, Yeah, I want to be around this person. I want to work with this person. I want to be friends with this person. And although the um, things that we like about people can be different, right? what what annoys one person um, somebody else finds completely charming, those drivers tend to be the same for all of us.
0: And what are some of those drivers?
2: There's three points in which we can impact likability. Before the conversation, during the conversation, and after. Before, it's about connecting to the real you and your authenticity. So it's um, your perception of yourself, how others perceive you, and most importantly in that before the conversation, it's your energy and that vibe that you bring to an interaction. During the conversation, we have a lot of points of impact where we can um, show that we are listening, find those points of similarity, and leave them feeling good. And then after the conversation, it's the light touches uh, familiarity and trying to add value to that connection.
0: So are there things, traits that people can exhibit that universally make you more likable?
2: Authenticity. And it's a broad answer, but the idea that you are projecting and bringing the real you to an interaction is universal. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to like the real you... But I appreciate that I am interacting with the real you because universally people do not like that sense of somebody being fake. You don't know who it is really, Um, and so that is a universal turnoff. But I also think.
0: But aren't uh, usually when we meet somebody, aren't we kind of putting our best foot forward and putting our you know our game face on, and we're not the real me?
2: I think we can bring a good energy to a situation in terms of that best foot forward. Um, and still bring the real you by asking questions and probing the conversation in a way that's interesting to you rather than what you think you should ask about or how you think you should respond. And so it's really following your natural interest and some self-disclosure. So sharing as well and creating a exchange, a back and forth.
0: Okay. What else?
2: Well, the other thing you mentioned is something that's universal, and I think the smile. I mean, it's such a simple thing, but a smile is universally understood. No matter what language, um, what country, you can see a smile from almost 30 feet away, and that reduces misperceptions of how somebody might read your body language, friend or foe. The smile immediately is disarming and opens up and invites somebody in to an interaction.
0: Why do you think it is that some people just seem to be so much more likable to so many more people than others? Why is some people, it's just such work, and other people seem to be so, look at them, boy, are they likable?
2: You know, we all have natural communication preferences, and the idea behind uh, relationship networking is to pursue the relationships that are most interesting to us and that we want to pursue, and also to pursue them in a way that feels comfortable and natural for us. So there's a lot of perceptions about there of people who work the room and just are so great at networking. That's just one way to do it, and that's the way that's comfortable for them. It just happens to be a very visible way. There's a lot of ways to um, show your likability um, and make those connections that aren't um, quite as center of attention uh, but as, are still as effective. Like? Um, if you're somebody who prefers the one-on-one. You might want to arrive to an event early where there's fewer people and you can have smaller uh, conversations. You might prefer uh, actually staying at the end or even working the, um, the check-in counter so you can meet people in a way that you have something structured to converse about. So there's a lot of different ways in which you want to realize um, where you feel you're best.
0: So these laws of likability that you have uh, compiled, what would talk about those?
2: Well, the first and the overarching law of likability is um, the law of authenticity. And as I said, it's the real you is the best you. You want to really stay connected to um, who you are. And if you're ever feeling that it's, you know, this doesn't feel like me, you kind of want to recenter yourself so you can bring that real you. There's uh, there's 11. Do you want me to go through all of them? Uh,
0: well, let's go through some of them.
2: Okay one of my favorites is uh, the law of energy and this is the idea and the law states that energy is contagious Uh, what we give off is what we get back and it's one of the most difficult ones for people to grasp we all have a mood we're all kind of sending off a vibe and what we don't think about because we are uh, allowing that mood and that vibe to drive us is that it impacts everything if you're having a bad day everything seems a bit harder uh, if you are dreading an interaction, that interaction is not going to go as well. If you can learn how to harness your energy and to shift it into um, a genuine, more positive place where people are more attracted to being around you versus, uh, you know, an energy that repels. And I'll tell you, I've I, I learned all of this from experience. One of the uh, jobs I had right after business school, I didn't want I dreaded that first day and I was oozing negative energy and literally I remember one girl just stopped talking to me and walked away. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, 10 years later, you start to understand the impact of of, um, letting that energy drive you. One of my other um, favorite laws is the law of giving. And it's the idea of doing because you can and that giving creates value. And it isn't about what are you going to do for me and and what's the reciprocity here, but it's um, give first. Give because you can. Give because it feels good. And, um, yeah, people might reciprocate and they might not or they might do something and pay it forward. And by putting all of that um, value out there, you can really create strong networks.
0: It seems fairly universal that the people who we find likable, or who I find likable, are positive. Talk about positive things, as opposed to people who, you know, complain about everything and whine and talk about their you know, <laughs> their ailments and their medications and and, and and those people just kind of by that the nature of what they say it, it makes them less likable. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be around somebody. Who's going to whine and complain and and talk about their ailments?
2: It is sometimes hard to be around the negative Nelly. I absolutely hear that. And that that kind of goes to that law of energy that we spoke about. If you're feeling in that place that's rather negative, you know what? I'm not going to tell you to paint on a a happy face because that's not real and that's not authentic. You want to find the ways to tap into um, a, a natural way to shift. And in the book, we talk about different exercises that you can do to help shift your energy. But sometimes you just need to remove yourself from a situation. You know that the energy you're bringing somewhere isn't effective for that uh, that moment, that person, that interaction. So remove yourself if it's at all possible. And that way you um, can be where you need to be in terms of your mood, um, but you're not uh, having an impact uh, long-term on the relationships or a uh, business connection. Now, if you can't, if you don't have a choice and you have to be in that situation, you need to try to find the thing um, that you can appreciate or enjoy about the person or the situation. Uh, sometimes it might just be that there's a really good uh, open bar <laughs> or um, you know that there's one person that you can connect with at that conference and you're really looking forward to, to seeing them and focus on that thing that m- makes you feel good rather than focusing on the things that you dread. Because that shift in focus will help shift the energy, even if it's only slight, to bring a better energy that's going to be better for the situation.
0: Uh, at At this risk of being provocative, I mean, isn't the trying to be likable kind of automatically making you not authentic? I mean, if this has to be an effort, then it's not really you.
2: That is not provocative at all, and actually it's a point that I make in the book. I don't want you to try to be likable. I don't think you can get everybody to like you. And that's not the goal. It's to understand how your behavior impacts your likability and to think about some general shifts in how we approach life and people in general. So I'm completely in agreement with you. We can be more effective at listening. We can tap into natural curiosity. We can um, think about how we can help others. It's an approach rather than, I'm doing this so you'll like me. That's certainly not the approach I want you to take. I agree.
0: Is the goal to be just a likable person so people are attracted to you, or is the goal to make yourself more likable to the people you want to connect with, or both?
2: I think the goal is to build a network that you enjoy interacting with. Because if you build a network of people that you really enjoy connecting with, that's a network that's going to last and sustain and support. And so some of those people are are, are ones that you think would be uh, good for your professional circle, and some are just your neighbors that you just happen to really get along with, and you just never know. And so when you focus on those true connections and still allow for the ones that might not be instantaneous to develop over time, we don't want to throw any possibilities out, you know, out the window, Um, but we also don't want to force them. And so don't over-pursue because you think you should, because you know what? every connection is a good connection.
0: What is it that that guy at the office that everybody likes or that neighbor down the street that everybody likes, I mean, there's there, we all know who those people are. What is it that they have that the rest of us perhaps don't have or haven't developed yet?
2: You know, some people do have a more um, joy of interacting with others. People who like people tend to be more likable. Now, that's just maybe a natural um, preference that some people have. They, you know, we can talk about extroverts versus introverts, but I think introverts have huge amounts of skill in networking that might not get, um, you know, fair recognition, um, whereas the extroverts who are a little bit more gregarious and outgoing and, and we see that everybody likes them tend to get a little bit more uh, recognition. So I think they give themselves more opportunities to make those connections and they get out there more. Whereas the introvert, I think, has the strength in listening and um, building deeper connections
0: but you you mentioned the word gregarious, and typically those people are gregarious they're they're more open and they you know they're funnier and they they just they're bigger personality wise than a lot of people is that is that an ingredient to being likable
2: no, not at all uh I would actually say that sometimes um, those that are quiet are more likable because they're not challenging those that are with those big personalities. So that's that old saying that opposites attract. We like people who are complementary to us often, and and it, it cracks me up because I notice this all the time. We often dislike people most similar to us because they challenge us or we see the things in them that we don't like in ourselves. And so we could be annoyed by that person who's too big and too bold, realizing that, oh God, are we like that too.
0: Lastly, I, since you say it's it's the, the number one and most important thing to, to be authentic, I think a lot of people hear that and go, what in the world does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to be authentic? I I am who I am.
2: Exactly. And um, if you can feel comfortable in that situation where you're being you, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you ever get that feeling where you're like, this isn't me, this isn't real, I I, I feel really awkward or uncomfortable, you have to question whether it's because you're trying to put on a happy face or you're trying to fake something, or is it just a situation or circumstances that you don't love? Um, If it's the former, then you kind of need to tap in and say, well, why am I pretending to be somebody I'm not, or why am I trying to, you know, schmooze when that's not my style? Because it's a should. But when you are being your authentic self, you're not going to have those moments. If you're uncomfortable because it's the situation, then maybe we're just stretching ourselves and then I would, then I would encourage you to continue to stretch yourselves in trying new things um, and you can take small steps. So you have to figure out what it is that's making you feel that this is not, you know, working for you. And then determine if it's just more that it's a personal challenge or that you're putting on um, or acting like somebody else.
0: And really, really, lastly, so so understanding the, the, the theory behind what you're saying. So if I'm in a situation, what are the kinds of things I can do in, in interacting with other people? You mentioned smiling and that kind of thing, but what what uh, like that, but but different? Uh, what are the kinds of things that are sort of universally will pull people in?
2: Ask them questions. Get to know them. People love to talk about themselves. And when you ask questions from that place of curiosity, what do you really want to know about them? I'm not saying you can't use the, well, what do you do question, but then you want to probe a little bit deeper, ask open-ended questions that require somebody to start talking, and then follow that conversation, sprinkle in a little self-disclosure, and see what commonalities you might discover between you, and then after those initial conversations, follow up. Think about what it is you talked about, and maybe you'll send them an article on the topic, or maybe you'll just connect to them on a social network. So stay in their mind. I always say, be in their circle, not in their face.
0: You know what it sounds like is maybe sometimes we just try too hard to be likable, and maybe just being who we are and being curious about other people is really what it's all about. Michelle Tillis Letterman has been my guest. Her book is The Eleven Laws of Likeability. There's a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes for this episode. There is a trick to getting ketchup out of the bottle when it doesn't seem to want to come out. But first of all, before I tell you what the secret is, you must know that this only applies to Heinz ketchup, which is the best-selling and, according to many people, the best tasting ketchup there is. But once you know the trick, you can apply it to any standard ketchup bottle. According to the Heinz people, there is a sweet spot on the standard glass bottle that you tap on in order to get the ketchup out. If you look at the Heinz bottle, there is an embossed 57 on the neck. Not on the label, it's actually embossed right into the glass. All you need to do is apply a firm tap right there on the 57 and the ketchup will come out easier. That little 57 embossed on the side of every Heinz ketchup bottle was strategically placed there for this exact purpose. And that is Something You Should Know. That's the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know.